Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Je vole sous le soleil Sans toi, rien n'est pareil Je vole sous ton ciel Je vole sous les tu allais, c'était bagage. Je vole sous un toit, même si tes bras sont loin de moi. Bonjour, my name is Tegan Higginbotham, and welcome to episode 8 of Ruler Mark. So you've decided to get married overseas. Apologies for the break in between episodes. I know I said I'd be gone for three weeks, uh, but it turns out I'm a filthy liar. Hey, nevertheless, we'll push on. In January 2019, my life took an interesting turn when my then fiancé and I decided to get married in Paris. In three months' time. Over the following episode, I'll be joined by said fiancé, now my husband, Paul Verhoeven, as we discuss some of the highlights and some of the challenges we faced when pulling all of this together. We'll also chat about a pretty funny incident with the British police, why Picard is the new love of my life, and why the following advice... My first tip is to walk. And you just walk. Take the time to walk. Nearly wrecked my wedding day. I'm Tegan Higginbotham. Welcome to Ruler Mark. Hello. It feels weird saying your last name. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for marrying me. Not a problem. Is it a spoiler? No, I think I think by now they get that it happened. I, I say do... that like I don't know that that's actually what you've been talking no, about. No, it for a few is. Weeks, so. But uh, I should ask: Have you have you listened to much Ruler Mark in the past? Well, uh, I've spent actual days of my life painstakingly <laughs> editing all the sound cues you pepper throughout the show uh, together. But no, no, I've never heard it. That's okay. That's all right. No, I understand. Uh, well, basically, I will catch you up. So over the past seven episodes, Paul, I've been talking about all sorts of things from learning to speak French to the myth of the French woman. I've spoken with some incredible guests, including your sister, Paul, Ann Verhoeven. Have you ever heard of her? No, I haven't. That's okay. Well, it turns out that without me actually intending to do this, and I'm really proud of this, a bit of a story has evolved over the series. From talking about the first time I was in Paris, heartbroken, lost, overwhelmed, to this most recent trip where I was literally getting married... This nice little arc has somewhat appeared. Now, of course, I'm really excited about chatting about some of the things we were and weren't able to organise while we were still in Australia for our wedding. Mm. But to kick things off, how did you feel when I initially suggested that we should get married in Paris after our Dales for Dreams were sullied? What did you think? Well, I don't know how to put this, Tegan, but I felt like my idea was really good. Yeah, plot what? twist. Yeah. So what actually happened was I... <laughs> Hang on, no, no, here's, here's what's actually happened. So... There were lots of different moving parts, lots of different people that we wanted to get involved, mm. and you were starting to get a bit stressed. 
So well before the Dalesford stuff, I said to you, why don't we just like run off to another country, go to Paris, just get married in Paris? I have literally no memory of this. Right. So what? You, and then then your your actual explanation for you know negging that idea was, well, you know, um, so and so won't be able to come. It'll be too expensive. You put it in the too hard basket, which is totally understandable. Yeah, I mean, I think even although I don't remember this situation that you're talking about, I'm just going to have to believe you. Sure. I know that I was more so conscious that certain people in our lives wouldn't be able to fly overseas. Yeah. No point even asking them. My two sisters, for example, have children, uh, three children between the both of them, all under the age of four. Yeah. They ain't getting on no plane and coming to a wedding in Paris. You no, know what I mean? No. And it was important for me to try as hard as I could to keep them involved. Yeah. It was only really once we'd looked at so many options and we had been looking at a lot of things for a lot of time that we realised that this Australian wedding that we were trying to build, it just didn't exist, certainly not within our price range. Yeah, so, so expensive. And we were sitting there just kind of reeling through the numbers and we had very large gin and tonics in our hands. (laughs) And then you said to me why don't we just go to Paris? And this big vein in my head started pulsing. And I'm like, yeah, that's a pretty good idea. All right, well, you know, let's not nitpick over whose idea it was. <laughs> no, no, th- here's, the, here's the thing. You can't, you need to get there organically. And also when you poo-pooed it, I agreed with the poo-pooing because it's an insane thing we did. It is. And it was only when we both had exhausted every other option that we went, you know, let's actually try this caper. Well, we locked it in and it was really there that day that we just decided that we we're going to do this in Paris. However, we then chose to actually have the wedding three months, just a little over three months down the track. Mm. April 24th was the date that we had locked in. Now, I, I think that must sound quite ridiculous for a lot of people. So just to explain some of the reasoning <laughs> behind that, there were quite a few reasons. One of the big ones for me was that I have been performing for a really, really long time. This year would have marked, it was either my 12th or my 13th comedy festival. I'm going to say 13th. I think it might have been lucky number 13. Mm. Um, But I had made a decision late last year that I wasn't going to be involved in this year's comedy festival. And that's fine. But the idea of just being in Melbourne while all of that was happening had made me feel really uncomfortable. I was worried I'd get to the end of March and just have incredible FOMO. So being away seemed like a really good idea, especially if the reason we're away was for our wedding. Yeah, and also it's a bit like when you break up with somebody. You don't want to have to keep running into friends of the person (laughs) and seeing posters of the person. Imagine you broke up with somebody and then every street corner someone's handing you a flyer with that person's face on it. That's kind of what it would be like wandering around Melbourne as a comedian who'd just taken a year off. Yeah, exactly. So when you you, you were like, can we just please do it over this period? Yeah, and it... There was that. There was the fact that it was going to coincide with early spring in Mm. Paris. So it wasn't going to be peak tourist season, but hopefully it wouldn't be the dead of winter because you and I seem to always be traveling (laughs) in the dead of winter whenever we go overseas. It coincided with a school holiday for my mum because it was Easter time. So many of the chips fell into place. However, it meant that we were pulling together a wedding in just over three months. Yeah, which, again, I would like to frame this just so that you don't feel retroactively stressed as a heist that we pulled, okay? Because there are a bunch of things you need for a heist. You need to get your crew together. You know, you need your demolitions expert. You need your flowers expert. Well, let's talk about that crew, shall we? Oh, yeah. So we decided on April 24th, and suddenly Paul and I had an awful lot to do. The first of those things was to actually send out the invites. As many people who have been through this will know, you need numbers to start locking things down like reception venues, figuring out budgets, etc. However, 
we were asking our friends to fly to the other side of the world. And that sort of decision making takes time. So while our RSVPs were still coming in, oh, but by the way, uh, did I share this with you? RSVP is a French thing. Is it? Yeah, it's respondez s'il vous plaît. Oh. I know, right? It's so odd. Anyway. Appropriate. So while those were still flowing in, we moved on to other things such as the rings. Yeah, and regarding the rings, um, my wedding ring is currently being resized. It is. Uh, but it's being resized by the jeweler who designed it. Now, should, well, hang on, should I talk about my ring or your ring first? Well, you can talk about your ring. It's just as. <laughs> Sorry, I am a child. You can talk about your wedding ring. I'm going to put wedding in front of that all the time. So my ring was designed by a jeweler from New Zealand, Sophie Divot, mm-hmm. and you came across her designs, actually. I did. I think I saw her work in maybe Hello May. Potentially, yeah. And, and we just we just really loved what she was doing. Oh, it's so great. And it's all very like nature-based. And she had this sterling silver ring, which was modeled after tree bark um, from trees near where she lives. And you pitched this ring at me, and I fell in love with it. And we had it designed. And because I'm a cheese ball... I asked her if she could engrave our initials on it as if they'd been carved on a tree. So in one little corner when the ring arrived, there's just like uh, TH4PV. That's very cute. It's so cute. And so that was my ring. It's it's uh, sterling silver, and that was that was really nice. Yours actually fell into place really quickly and easily. You yeah. saw the ring and just went, that's the one. Yeah. For me, it was a bit more of a journey that we went on just given that – You'd gone down an interesting path with my engagement ring. Mm. So a lot of people, uh, their engagement ring has a rock on it, whatever rock that is, whether it's a diamond or whatever. You didn't go down that path for me. You got something just really small, really simple. I loved it. But we'd encountered something somewhat uncomfortable. I certainly felt uncomfortable Mm. in that when you tell people that you're engaged, they ask to see your ring. Yes. And sometimes I received feedback that – to me, felt like they were judging you based on the ring or how much they perceived the ring's worth was. Yeah. Uh, um, and I, I found it was really uncomfortable, first of all, because it genuinely didn't matter to me. But it was some of that stuff that I was feeling with wedding planning as well, which was where your love is being measured by how much you've spent on it. Yeah, people are actually expecting you to basically lay out yep. almost a portfolio yeah. and then they flick through it and go, okay, how much money did you spend? Because somehow that seems to line up for people in terms of, well, I need to know how much you care about this person yeah. and about this event and the more money you spend. And I think that's that was offset somewhat later on by the wedding photos that we showed of us in Paris, right? When it came to the wedding ring, you I felt like you were almost trying to make up for that by then getting a wedding ring that had some sort of rock or gem or whatever you want to call it on there. Yeah. And we were looking at auction sites, which, by the way, if you are thinking of buying a new ring, look at auction sites because the price difference is so huge between what you see in a shop and what were some of the sites that we were looking at? Can you remember? You mean in terms of the auctioneers? Yeah. Well, um, there's a great one in Sydney called um, uh, Kelleher's, I believe. Yeah. And Kelleher's is what, because my dad is an antique dealer. Of course. Um, well, he is, he is now. And he recommended a few auction houses where ostensibly people will bring antiques in. The antiques get very quickly valued and then they just get sold at insane prices. And you can get on there and you submit a form and you can watch the auction live mm. at work, which is very professional but you can so do it you can so i i still would recommend that as an option yeah even though we ended up not going down that path well, that's we, because i i mean I, I actually found a few rings there were a few shortlisted rings which were but ugly but had huge rocks on them so <laughs> and I, we felt we were like pushing towards this thing as if we had to make something up yeah. as if to justify but then we, we had this conversation with my mum. we were telling her about it 
And she'd been thinking a lot about her jewellery lately anyway because she's doing that weird thing that parents do, which is they've gotten really weird about setting up a will. Like they need the will right now. Yeah, they're, they're closing up shop. <laughs> it's they're, just they're so done. strange. Yeah. But, you know, listen, maybe we should all have a will. I don't know. It's a different podcast, a different conversation. But then she mentioned that um, she had the ring of my great-grandmother, Mary, her wedding band. And she brought it round one night. Remember, we all went down to Shadowbox in South Yarra and we're having a drink there. Mm. And she she presented this beautiful ring. It's just a really simple gold band. And I popped it on and it fits not a little bit. She instantly disappeared and then Nazgul chased her (laughs) (laughs) But it fit perfectly and I just went, oh, that's it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, didn't just take my mum's ring, but then she offered it that we could use it. And it feels so much better that it's actually a ring that has some meaning to me. Mm. I don't know if people know this about me, but I was meant to be called Mary. Did you know this? I did not know that. That was the name that I was meant to be given before dad called me Tegan because he had the hots for a woman off of Doctor Who. Yeah. So you know that story. The name that was meant to be there was Mary because of my great-grandmother. And, I mean, as we all know, Tegan is the objectively, like, the worst assistant in Doctor Who history. Well, let's just move on, shall we? Yeah. (laughs) So we got the rings all sorted. A couple of other things that we wanted to arrange while we're still in Melbourne, of course, were our outfits. Yeah. It probably would have made sense to get your suit, especially in London, but we just didn't know. We didn't want to leave that to chance. Yeah, there's a few things that you want to have locked away. One of the things that we wanted to do was not rock up naked. So clothing was obviously very important. Now, I get most of my suits from Jack London, mm-hmm. um, and they tend to make like very skinny kind of mod suits. And I wandered in there with you and picked this grey checked suit with uh, a lovely uh, like royal blue waistcoat, and I bought a tie, and I was good to go. And I asked you if you liked it, and you said, yes, yes, you look great. And then... Um, I had to get it tailored because it wasn't fitting quite right. And as we're in the tailors and we're having a bit of a freak out, he says, I can't alter this. We need to take it back to the store. Basically, and- what he was saying is that if the, if the suit's too big, yeah. you can bring it in. Mm. But the suit was too small. And some suits, you can't just bring down the cuff or something like that. Yeah. And to be honest, when he pointed it out... He said, you can just take it back because I work with Jack London all the time. And you said something along the lines of, thank God, I hate that suit. Which was a really interesting point to find out because this was a few weeks out. I tend to leave things a little late. Yeah, this was a concerning thing. So I'd been nagging you, and I don't like nagging, but I'd been nagging you to go and get this suit tailored for some time. In your defense, I had put myself in a position where the only thing you could do was nag. So (laughs) please don't blame yourself. Um, And I'd been been asking you to go and do this, and you finally went and did it. So now we were getting close to crunch time. Mm. We'd be heading overseas really soon. We walk in there and the suit is clearly too small. And I take some blame for this as well because it Mm. wasn't a little bit too small. You put it on and it was just too small, not only in the arm but in the body. I look like Donald Trump in a tuxedo. It was very strange. But then, yeah, you're right. I did actually also take that moment to go, I'd not love the suit. I'd love that you had loved it so much. (laughs) Love that you love it. I did and I was excited and I didn't want to be the one to stamp on your dreams when you'd first tried it on because you were so into it. I loved it. But the thing is, we walked into the shop and uh, there was a beautiful, like like a light brown camel kind of Czech version of basically the same style of Mm -hmm. suit and we both adored it. Now, it was so much Better. I'm just going to put this on the table right now, Tegan. The man serving us was a bit of a dick. One of the reasons you go to Jack London is because they're usually really like, cool, hey, peppy guys. And oh, they're, really, they're really cool. I've never had a bad experience with Jack London. This guy wasn't bad. He was just so emotionally detached and kind of like flippant and just, yeah, he was a dick. Right. I'll be bleeping that. Don't worry. So what happens is he uh, is so disengaged from us and so too cool for school that he fails to realize that I bought the suit on a discount. Not discount, like 
like a Boxing drastic. Day, Christmas, crazy, almost half price sale. It was like 40% off, right? It was pretty, and yeah. So I got the suit and the waistcoat and the tie. And so he basically didn't realize that. And we ended up getting a couple of hundred dollars worth of uh, stuff out of him because he wasn't paying attention. Well, no, no, no. What you've got to explain is that he then did a direct exchange for the grey suit for this beautiful new brown one, yeah. not realising that there was about $200 difference in the price. Now, ironically, if he'd been much nicer and was paying more attention to us as customers, he would have noticed that discrepancy. Well, we didn't even notice until we were about halfway home because we'd been in such a huff about how weird he'd been. No, no, I did notice. I noticed while it was happening. What? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, look, You're I... Th- I just wanted well this this wedding is a heist, you know, and one of the things it's we not. noticed that was an analogy, our wedding wasn't a heist. Up 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 Tegan's eleven. Tegan's eleven. That's yeah. pretty great. So yeah, that was the suit, but the dress was also a very, very interesting thing because last time uh listeners uh of Rillamark will have heard about the time that you went and tried on a dress in Paris mm-hmm. and we wanted to get something from that designer. Unfortunately, that dress would have worked out at about, I think, 5000 Australian dollars. No, it was about 6000 Australian dollars, which is just... Uh, a bit expensive. It's a bit expensive. Even if I had all of the money in the world, mm. that's $6,000 for one dress. I just don't know how that sits with me. The designer was Donatelle Godard and her stuff is beautiful. The dress was the Claire de Lune. I'd seen it in, I think it was... I think it was French Vogue yes, it when was I French first Vogue. saw it and I just remember. went, oh, that's the dress. Mm. Tried it on. That was the dress. I was so happy. So working backwards from that moment where I felt like I'd already found the dress that I wanted but legitimately couldn't afford it, that was really weird because we tried we tried quite a few outfits on after that going in really different directions yeah. and nothing compared to that moment. Then you and I were just out walking one day and we happened to walk past the just everybody knows this shop, just Zimmerman. Mm. And there was a dress, not even in the window. I saw a sleeve hanging out from this rack. Yeah, you get very good at spotting the, the colour of yeah, wedding dress exactly. fabric you're when you're like... looking for a, a, like a not technically wedding dress dress. But I pulled it out from the from the rack and I showed you and you went, oh, yeah. And I went, yeah, no, this this looks great. This, this should do. We tried it on. It fit perfectly. Mm. And I went, what do you reckon, this? And you went, this? It's great. We hadn't even looked at the price by this time. When we did check it out, it was $590. And I think it's worth pointing out that we didn't settle for this dress. No. You tried it on. I took some. I still have the video on my phone. No, it was... And it was sublime. Yeah, actually, you know, you're right. I'm, I'm downplaying it. It's just that it felt so simple. Yeah. We saw it. We saw that that was the dress. Yeah. We put it on. It's true. It was the dress. It was the dress. We were thrilled. And I didn't think I'd have that moment again uh. of being so comfortable in an outfit. So I took it home and I hung it up and I was really worried that maybe we'd acted too quickly. I was worried that we'd get to the wedding day and I would have changed my mind or cooled on an outfit because I can do that as well. Or I would have rocked up in the same thing, which would have been super, super awkward. Super awkward. Yeah. But uh, no, I loved my dress. It's perfect. I loved it so much. It was great. And if you haven't seen the dress, uh, you can check out photos of it. uh... I'll make sure there's some new photos up with this uh, podcast. So good. While all this shopping was going on, we'd been firing out emails to anyone we could find in Paris, hoping to lock down a ceremony venue. This was proving difficult because A, language barriers were a real bitch, and B, the Louvre said no. We also had a lot of people trying to be helpful by pointing out that we couldn't legally get married in their venues. And this was very true. To be legally recognised, a marriage in France must take place at a town hall. 
Many couples then opt to have a religious or a symbolic ceremony afterwards. So from a French perspective, that's sort of what we were trying to do, just without the town hall legal bit. Because Paul and I could not legally get married in Paris. Not without having lived there for 30 days and gone through an awful lot of red tape. And even then, there were still no guarantees. From what I could gather, and please do correct me if I'm wrong, but all non-residents who don't have a parent living in France need a special dispensation to get married. And unfortunately, these are rarely granted. But for us, that wasn't really an issue. As far as these things go, a piece of paper from the government, either Australian or French, wasn't a priority. But it did make explaining what we were trying to do quite difficult. So we decided we were going to leave locking the actual ceremony location down until we were in Paris, at which point we'd look for a garden or something. But when it came to the reception venue, we decided to get a bit creative. As we'd experienced in Melbourne, trying to find somewhere to hold a wedding reception for a small group is really difficult. It's really difficult, guys. Yes, you could go with a restaurant, but would you feel comfortable doing speeches with strangers looking on? Can you play the music you want? Can you dance in the restaurant? Sure, you could find a reception venue, but then you could be facing the same crazy prices you get in Australia. And we should point out that our guest list was looking to be between 10 to 15 people. We do not need a hall, okay? We do not need a hall. So in the end, we went a slightly different way. So the important things we realized that we wanted, Paul, were that we wanted somewhere where we could potentially cater the event ourselves, that we wanted that as an option. Yeah. We wanted somewhere we had freedom of time. So if we wrapped up at 11, that's fine. If we wrapped up at three in the morning, that's also okay. We just needed that, mm. that, that flexibility and we wanted privacy as well. Yeah. So in the end, I can't remember who it was that actually came up with the idea, but we started searching for unique Airbnb spaces. Yeah, which was... Really interesting because, I mean, my main thing was I wanted it to feel French, if yeah. you recall. I wanted people to look out the window and go, look, we flew all the way over to Paris mm -hmm. and we want the most French experience possible. That's right. So for a long time, you were really pushing for somewhere rooftops. with a rooftop or yeah. a balcony. And we scoured the city trying to find rooftops that we could hire. Mm. And this was something that wasn't feeling very comfortable for me. First of all, because a lot of the rooftops were massive. And once again, we were looking for a group of 10 to 15 people. Yeah. But also, spring in France, there is a 50% chance in April that it will rain any given day. Yeah, and given how long on a wedding day people have particularly spent getting ready, yeah. the last thing you want is to be bucketed down on. Or just even if it's a cold day, you don't want to be there in some beautiful dress, yeah. huddling on a rooftop, freezing. <sighs> you know, That's the time of the day when you've already been out for hours. You actually just want to relax and feel thoroughly comfortable. Yeah. So after a while, we realized that we weren't going to get quite the rooftop that we wanted. But as you said, we still wanted something that looked quintessentially French. That's right. And that's when we stumbled upon a venue called Kai's Kitchen. Um, it's run by an Australian guy, actually, called Kai, yeah. who'd moved over to Paris. And he'd set up this beautiful, not quite commercial kitchen space. Like, it is still an Airbnb. There was still a bedroom and a bathroom. But it was a kitchen that was often used for things like photo shoots, for cooking demonstrations. Mm. And it was stunning. Yeah, it's basically a fully decked out. Again, it's not commercial. It's it's like it's like a small rustic kitchen, mm. but it's got like it had everything. And it also because it's made for cooking demonstrations. Yeah, it photographed really well. And it, yeah, it actually looks beautiful in the photos. <laughs> I've got to say, but it did all of a sudden give us that option of whether we wanted to hire a caterer, yeah. somebody who would come and do the catering for us on the night, mm -hmm. or whether we wanted to look after it ourselves. Now, you and I did explore catering quite extensively, yeah. and we got quite uh, advanced into a few conversations with caterers in Paris. Yeah. 
But in the end, once again, the budget just wasn't working for what we we're trying to do, especially when you considered the menu that we were aiming for. Yeah, a lot of the things we wanted and the things that we enjoyed in terms of French food were basically, let's not lie, poulet roti. So <laughs> it's just chicken and potatoes. Food. It's we street food. chicken and potatoes. And so a lot of the caterers we went and talked to were like, hey, we can give you gourmet versions of the chicken and potatoes. And they were charging through the roof because they knew that it was an important day for us. Well, we're still using the W word. We're still saying wedding. Yes. But the tricky thing was that we knew already from having been in Paris how much this stuff would cost if we just went out and got it ourselves. Mm. Now, of course, we had a lot of really good friends going, please don't try and cater this yourself. You need to just spend the day relaxing. But in the end, it just wasn't working, this idea of having it catered by someone else. So that was another thing we added to our list. We were going to cater our own wedding. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You know what, Paul? I think we've spent enough time chatting about all the things we managed to achieve planning-wise from Australia. Why don't you uh, you and I get our butts overseas? Oh, are we taking the magic school bus? Why not? Oh, Miss Frizzle's aged terribly. Seatbelts, <laughs> <laughs> everyone! My parents, Paul, and I landed in London on the 11th of April and found the city bathed in mild sunshine, apparently for the first time that year. People had their shirts off. It was weird. In Kensington Garden, pink blossoms were in full bloom, and by the Princess Diana Memorial Fountain, children had rolled up their trousers and were splashing about in the water, despite the fact that it was still f***ing freezing by Australian standards. We caught a cab to Devonshire Terrace in Paddington and checked into our accommodation, which I had booked through the Plum Guide. Now, Paul, what was your review of our property in Paddington? Shithole. <laughs> Like, no. No, no. It was called, I believe it was called the Hidden Staircase. It was called the Hidden Staircase. So what happens is you get to this long apartment and it's all a bit dusty and there's doors falling off and like nothing seemed to work. Well, let's say that like on the doors falling off thing, we got introduced, uh, shown around the property by, not by the owner. It was clearly one of those people that they'd hired and her job was just to show people through their properties and give them the keys. Yeah. And in the in one of the little corridors that you walk through, this door was literally hanging on a hinge and kept kind of clicking off quite precariously. Like if you banged into it, it would hurt. Mm. And I was like, "Hey, have you noticed this?" And she's like, "Yeah, yeah, we've logged it." I'm like, cool. You wanna you you wanna fix that thing? <laughs> but it had been logged, so you know that's at least something. And speaking of logs, uh, there were <laughs> there were mice in the apartment who just kept. Sh- Everywhere. In fact, there was one that your parents developed something of a fondness for. They called it Pippin. They called it Pippin because we saw it that much. This the first night we saw it, it was hilarious. You were upstairs having a nap because you'd been throttled by jet lag a little bit. Mm. And from downstairs, you can just hear Mum and I screaming. And I don't know what it is about mice. We are clearly bigger, but you see a little mice running through the room. Oh my god, we were screaming. But we saw this one mouse and thought it was kind of cute and quaint. And the parents actually stayed in that property for a few days longer than we did when we went over to Paris. And apparently it wasn't a mice, it was lots of mice. The kitchen was so badly designed that you couldn't even make toast without the fire alarm going off. Mm. And the secret staircase they're referring to was just basically a room in a cupboard. It was Horrible. And that's where the uh, the newlyweds to be <laughs> to stayed. be yes. So it wasn't um, good. 
It <laughs> wasn't good, Tegan. Let's be honest. And also, when you booked this place through the Plum Guide, because the Plum Guide, uh, for curious listeners, it's like Airbnb, but they basically sift through and peer review the best of the best of the best. It's a curated uh, list of what they say the, the top 1% of Airbnbs from around the world. Yeah. Um, so... I don't know who put that one on the list because we've had some wonderful stays in London. But from the very get-go, I don't know. It was just really tricky. The place wasn't up to scratch and it wasn't what I'd hoped for. Also, very important point. If you are, like me, an obsessive fan of the Paddington Bear movies, Mm. which are excellent. Paddington is one of my all-time heroes. Don't go to Paddington and stay there expecting Paddington experiences because Paddington, as we found out, is nothing like that. Paddington actually lives in, where does he live? It Primrose Hill. In Primrose Hill. So we went for a walk there one day and it's like it's like a goddamn fairy tale land. Primrose Hill, absolutely beautiful. Paddington, the suburb, yeah. uh, very touristy, unfortunately. Right. We should have just stayed in Notting Hill again. We had a really positive experience there. Mm. One of the things we discovered quite quickly was that when you're planning something as big as a wedding or overseas, it's really difficult to find downtime in the days prior. Even when we were in London, we'd set ourselves little tasks like finding bonbonieri and party favours for our guests, all that sort of stuff. What did you call them? Well, bonbonieri. Yeah. That's what do you mean? I've been using that word heaps. What's a bonbonieri? Uh, it's a gift. It's a actually here we go. It's another French word. It's uh, from bonbon. Bonbon is candy. So it's a box of candy. Except I didn't get them candy. So. Why not just like go with like a lolly bag? <laughs> <laughs> like at a party. Oh my god, the money we would have saved if we'd just given our guests a lolly bag. Hire a, cl- hire a fucking wedding clown. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for flying to Paris. Here's your Alan's lolly. Well, you think about it. It shares a lot of things in common. You know, you have a piece of cake. Well, look, we didn't. We didn't get them a bag of lollies, so there you go. Sure. But anyway, we, it just took time putting these things together because when you're in a foreign city, you don't know exactly where to go. So doing all the shopping elements really eats into your days. And it was funny because we weren't finding nearly as much of the time to just do the kind of touristy sightseeing things that we like to do when we're overseas. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff that I really, really wanted to do. And one of the things we just, I guess we just bit off more than we could chew. We really did. And one of the things I've discovered that you actually probably need before a wedding is just some time to think about the wedding. Mm -hmm. And because we decided to build everything ourselves, five days of wedding building in London and then another like week of doing it in Paris, by the time the wedding came around, we were exhausted. And I think in terms of advice, one thing I would say is just like, just have some time off before the wedding. We'll definitely get to more of that sort of stuff later. But, you know, we did fit things in in London and that's because we walked an awful lot. Yeah. Which uh, leads to another warning, actually. So because Paul's phone tracks him wherever he goes, which is weird, we realised that we walked 15 kilometres the first full day we're in London, then 12 kilometres the next day. So by the third day, I had a real problem. Yeah. I got home and um, actually this was just after we'd gone to Primrose Hill so you could visit Paddington and that morning my foot had been hurting a little bit. Sorry, just wind back a little bit. You just said so we can go to Primrose Hill so I could visit Paddington. Well, why else were we in Primrose Hill? We went to the street Paddington lives in. Uh We went up to the door of Paddington's house. And you knocked on it. And I knocked on it and cried a bit. Yes. And it was one of the best days of my life. (laughs) So when thinking about your your sore foot, please take into account how much joy it brought me. No, you're right. It was completely (laughs) worth it. We got back and it wasn't just a little bit sore. All of a sudden, I couldn't put pressure on a particular part of my foot. Mm. And I should point out for listeners, I've got dodgy bones. So a few years back, (laughs) I actually fractured my other foot by 
not even kicking a couch. I didn't kick a couch. My foot brushed delicately beside the edge of a very padded couch and fractured. Yeah, one day I, you're going to sit down on a stool and your thighs are going to erupt out of your body. Basically. Like you have a bird I did, skeleton. I did a hairline fracture in my hip because I stepped off of stage, not fell, <laughs> I stepped off of stage incorrectly when I'm doing a trial show for Whose Line Is It Anyway, actually. Yes, yes. And then all of a sudden my foot was hurting and it felt like it felt like a fracture. That's yeah, what and it felt like. You, Tegan's one of these people, one of these brave, wonderful people <laughs> who won't tell you if something hurts. So when Tegan is basically talking about the pain nonstop, you know it's really bad. Yeah, if it gets to the point where I consider sitting down, yeah. it's a problem because otherwise I'll push through and just be like, that's okay. <laughs> It'll work itself out. <laughs> Your head's falling off. Nah, it's fine. Yeah. In um, the heist movie metaphor, you're the one who gets kind of shot early in the movie and you're like, it's fine. And then we get to the end, we pull the heist off and you collapse and you die because you didn't tell anyone that you were me. bleeding to death. But anyway, I sounded like a machine gun. Anyway, so you were sitting there and you'd brought us back to the horrible mouse ridden shit house. <laughs> and you said, thanks plum guy. Uh, you need to rest. And I went, not a chance. So I kind of met you halfway in the middle and decided that we should rent those bikes, yeah, those O-bike things. You know how in Australia we have, you know, uh, coin-operated bikes, which are, you know, a lovely public service and a wonderful idea. And because we're Australians, we throw them in trees or in rivers. So in uh, – Because we're awful. So what happened was we get on these bikes and we are at Witch Gardens. This is the um, the Kensington Gardens, yes, which, Ken- of course, are next to Hyde Park. Amazing. Kensington Gardens kind of join up with Hyde Park. It's in the heart of London. It's stunning. So we get on these bikes and we start cycling around and it's idyllic. Your foot stops hurting. It's the best day of my life. It was honestly, it was. It was all pink cherry blossoms and swans blue skies and, and swans and ducks. Laughing children and-, and immaculate, like immaculate English lawns. And we're down by the river and then we decide to take a bit of a detour. And yeah. And one of the things, because I'm the driver in this relationship, so while we were having a wonderful time, I was also just curious about some of the road laws. We were riding around without helmets already. That felt quite strange and foreign to me. But we were also riding on footpaths, and I just didn't know if that was okay. So there was this Bobby, this uh, British policeman standing around, and we rode up to him, and I was like, G'day, mate, Uh, because when I'm overseas, I say g'day all the time. It's like, g'day, can you, do you know what the dealio is with these bikes? Like, are we breaking the law right now by being on the footpath? And he was really great. He just explained that certain parks you're okay, certain parks you're not. One of the things that's really clear is sometimes you see on the footpath a little, you know, a spray-painted bike man with a cross through him, um, which probably means don't ride there. But there was also this crowd starting to build up in the direction of Buckingham Palace. We could see Buckingham Palace down the road and just an awful lot of people. So we said, hey, mate, what's going on down there? And he said, oh, it's the changing of the guard. Feel free to ride down there if you want. Just, you know, be careful because there's a lot of people around. Oh, there were thousands of people just kind of filing down this road and down the footpath. And we had this cop's, you know, blessing. So we rode down and kind of, you know, smushed our way through the people. And for those of you who haven't been to Buckingham Palace, the palace basically faces an enormous semicircle of road with huge roads then spindling out in different directions. It's, more, it's not a semicircle. It's a full uh, roundabout. Sure. Full, full circle. And you have the gates and there's just this crowd huddled around in, you know, like a circle. So everywhere that there was foot path yeah. were just people, just thousands and thousands of people. You could slowly begin the, uh, to hear the music starting to play. For some reason it was... Yeah, because they're, they're playing yeah, the, cool. the theme from The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. And the thing is, the people, obviously because they've been told not to, aren't standing on the road because there's police, there's bobbies, right? So the police are stopping these thousands of people. So there's a huge ring of like 
So, how many people do you think conservatively? Oh, look, I almost want to say at least more than five thousand, but I I push up from that. It's me being very conservative. Sure, but we're on our bikes. And well, we... you've got to point out as well. Yeah. Not only were the people being told to get off the roads, and, mm. and policemen were yelling at them, "Get off the roads!" You know, yeah. clear the roads. They had also though blocked the roads to traffic. Yes. So it's not like there were cars going through. No, no. Empty end of the world roads, right? Just stark empty roads at the front of Buckingham Palace. You never ever see this, by the way. No, you never see it. But there was one little loophole in the policeman's plan, which is cars couldn't come through, pedestrians couldn't go on the roads, bikes, weird grey area. Well, because no, every cop we encountered seemed to have a different yes or no answer because clearly this, this just hadn't been raised at the meeting. So we are parked at the little... So we're on the road and there's a cop there and he's kind of shrugged and gone, I guess it's fine. I guess you can just ride through because you can't stay there so yep. you've got to keep on going. So the, the, the brass band is going, 5,000 people at least, at least. dead silence. And then this little green bicycle man on this like goes pink and we go, all right. So we start riding down the road past the crowds. I felt like Freddie Mercury. Well, people were clearly looking at us like, who are these guys? Is this the Queen? <laughs> Which was, it was and nice, so then, coming, but it was nice. It was nice in our pre-wedding phase to feel really special. Because also, because the music had just begun to start playing, everybody had shut up. Yeah. So got to imagine all these thousands of perfectly white people <laughs> and we're riding through. And once again, because I'm me and I like doing this when I travel, I start waving going... G'day! And then we stop, and then there's another little light which stops us literally halfway, like halfway along the circle, stop. <laughs> so we're at the lights. And we, we had this conversation with these two tourists pressed like, you know, sardines against the barricade. Yeah. And I think the question they asked was, who are you and what are you doing here? And just before we could answer, the light goes green again, and we just start riding. And what had happened was this crowd had basically sucked people away from all the major tourist attractions and roads in yeah. the area. So we are riding through, like, empty London it on these bikes. It was incredible, but we just realised that we could just keep doing laps and coming back around <laughs> and doing different ways of attacking this roundabout yeah. of fucking palace. And then we started seeing the same cop, the one who was the, probably the most likely to say, you're not meant to be here. And But I think the third time we did it, he gave us this look of, like, hey, Australians, you're pushing your luck. Yeah. <laughs> we kind of just said, <laughs> like, okay, we got the message. Going. Yeah, but as we rode back out of this incredible, I think what was 90 minutes of just like Wee. proper proper magical realist stuff, right? God, save the queen. So we ride back out and we ride past that oh, the, the Bobby who'd kind of given you the go-ahead at the very start. Yeah. And I just run up to him like, hey, thanks, man. That was the best bike ride of my life. And he was just, he, he was so British and so polite. We rode back home and your feet were fine because apparently it was only walking that screwed you over. Well, no, it was, if you're riding a bike, it's just pressing the very ball, the very top of your foot. Yeah. It was something about the arch in my foot. That's where the problem was. But, you know, we won't go into that too much more. I do like that in a podcast about Paris and France, uh, we've just talked about Buckingham Palace for 10 minutes. <laughs> well, you know what? That's a really good point, Paul. We should wrap up London. Just before we do, one other thing that was incredible. We actually went to the Kew Gardens. People will remember that I spoke about us going to the Kew Gardens the last time we were in London for the Christmas lights show, but it was dark, it was rainy, we didn't actually get to see much of the garden aspect of the gardens. We went back this time and it was great. I highly recommend it. I'm a nana. I like things like bridges and lakes and and greenhouses and, and tulips and the Kew Gardens gave me all of that and more. Also, um, I don't know if you know this, but in England, the soft serve ice cream oh has God. like Kentish clotted cream in it. So it's got a yellowish color to it because you're basically eating butter. It was so good. It's the best soft serve ice cream you'll get in the world. Ours tastes like crap. No, it's bollocks. Our, our soft serve, we just don't know how to do it. It's a nightmare. But Paul, can I ask, how did you feel at the end of our short trip in London? The, the, the opening, I suppose, to our wedding journey. I was 
absolutely exhausted. Mm. I really do think that, don't get me wrong, it was magical as that last story illustrates. It was incredible. But I was tired by the time I got to Paris. Yeah. And I wanted to feel rested and bright-eyed. And I think... Maybe we bit off like 20% more than we can chew. And also, we should have just stayed in Notting Hill. Yeah, I think I got to the end of London and usually I love being in London. It's one of my favourite places. Um, but I was I was feeling a little bit flat. I was feeling really concerned about my foot because at that stage, I didn't know what exactly I'd done. Yeah, I couldn't walk on it at all. And I was worried that it was going to keep getting worse. Um and I was really upset by the accommodation. I know that sounds weird. You're not meant to let the little things get to you. But whenever we go overseas with these big groups or just even with my family, I tend to do a lot of the booking and that's okay. I'm mm. happy to take on that responsibility. But what it means is that you do feel responsible for everybody's happiness in that situation. So if I choose a bad place, suddenly four people are in a bad place. And I really, I wore that. Um, by the time we hit our last day in London, I was feeling a little bit underwhelmed. And to be honest... I was really happy to get on the train and head over to Paris. Speaking of which, can I ask, how did it feel to be back in Paris after having done Rue the podcast? Honestly? Yeah. It was, it felt like coming home. It was the weirdest sensation. We got out of the station at Gare, Gare, Gardenor, not Gare, Gardenor. I always get that wrong and second guess myself. And once again, the sun was shining. But it just felt right. I feel like going to London this trip had been actually a mistake. We should have just gone straight to Paris. And I remember the very first shop I walked into um, was to get an insole for my shoe because I was still trying to figure out what to do about my foot. That's right. So I walked in there and I started the conversation in French. He asked me a question. I was able to reply in French. I think by about the fourth question, it was then getting iffy and I couldn't communicate anymore. But by that stage, he just swapped to English and it was... It was effortless. It was so easy. And then we got to our accommodation and we had booked this through the plum guide as well. So by this stage, I was feeling pretty worried that it was going to be a double dud situation. But we met Jasper out the front. Oh my God. Can we please just talk about Jasper? Just the most beautiful Frenchman you could possibly imagine. Just like curly hair, like effortless curly hair, just kind of like <laughs> a like pink cheeked, like just this beautiful, beautiful, charming just man. Just lovely person who was so just on top of wanting to try and make our trip as comfortable as possible. And can we name the place we went to? Yeah, of course. We stayed at the um the the Hotel Victor Massé, yeah. which was sort of what he'd actually decided that he wanted to create something that felt halfway between an Airbnb and a hotel. So it had hotel standards, but it felt more like a little house as opposed to just a room. Yeah, he was like a like a like a Basil Faulty, but hyper competent. Well, he bought this place with the specific intention of designing this business. So it was all him and he was just so passionate about it. Yeah. We got a room on the very top floor, which was this double story situation oh with a little God. mezzanine. It had a it had a sunlight that would open. You'd press a button and the roof would basically open. To and the, in, the entire front side of the apartment was windows. So looking you, out onto this beautiful oh. French courtyard. I, and I, I don't mean to go on, but it's just we were so concerned after the first experience had been so bad. <laughs> That this second one was going to be terrible and it just was the opposite. This place was great. So we dumped all of our bags and we headed straight down to um, La Durie, actually, mm. because we we told ourselves that we needed to start uh, testing macarons to decide which ones we wanted to serve on our wedding day. So, you know, tough work, but we had to do it. And then uh, not long after that, my foot did start really hurting again so we couldn't throttle day one and you started googling symptoms which is never a good idea because you're like i think the muscles come away from the bone and i'm like cool (laughs) so we went back to the accommodation and 
by now I'm feeling pretty good. And what made it even better was the fact that you went out and grabbed us dinner. Yeah. You got us some wine, some bread, some cheese, ah. and then a surprising addition. Yes, because uh, we arrived at a kind of odd time uh, of the day and not everything was open. A lot no. of the pulley roti places have been closed up. So uh, I wandered into a place, the name of which grabbed me somewhat because I'm a massive nerd. There is a chain of stores in France called Picard. And Picard is where you buy frozen meals, but they're frozen meals for bougie French people who are fussy. So as a joke, I got pulley roti and it's frozen. And I pop it in front of you and we roll our eyes. We pop it in the oven and we serve it up. And don't get me wrong. I was delirious with fatigue. And because we were building our own wedding, there was a point where I just went, you know, this is probably good enough to serve at the wedding. And I swear to God, for a moment, something passed across your face that implied that you may. It was so good, it though. Was it was so the good. best. Mi- I've not eaten a lot of microwave meals in my life, but if they were all like this, I would live in a microwave. Yeah, we it had. It was so amazing. Probably not good to do that health wise. Probably not. But we did have lots of polyroti throughout the trip, and the frozen one sits somewhere in the middle. <laughs> perfectly, being perfectly honest. No, it was. So after visiting London and just not connecting, I was not in a London state of mind. We'd come over to Paris and it had clicked. I was so happy to be there. It turns out South Begal is an amazing suburb. The accommodation was great. The food was making me feel really happy. The weather looked like it was going to be absolutely fantastic. I was sitting in this room finally feeling really good about life. And I remember you were sitting there with your computer and you turned to me and you said, Hey, Tegan. I think Notre Dame is on fire, at which point I laughed because I just assumed you were joking. And then you said, no, 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 seriously, Tegan, I'm not joking. Paris is burning. Next week on Ruler Mark, we'll be talking about the week leading up to the big day. We'll also chat about everyone's favourite, Pierre Trouvé from Paris, and let you know about his hometown, the beautiful Chantilly. We did get out there and it was great. Plus, Easter in Paris and many more fun recommendations for your next trip over. Thanks to everyone who stayed in touch via the Rulermark Facebook group. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and feel free to share it around. And if you have any questions, do shoot them through. I've been Tegan Higginbotham with my very special guest, Paul Verhoeven, and you've been listening to Rulermark. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.